Hey, Shannon. There have been a lot of interesting discussions happening surrounding the science of reading and the reading wars, so let's fill our listeners in on the current situation and provide some resources and links. Today we're recording, and it is January 17th, so just a timestamp so that you know where we are on the timeline and spectrum of things. January 17th, 2020. Oh, 2020. Happy 2020. <laughs> This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Okay, this is episode 11, The Reading Wars. Welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. I'm Mary Sagafi. Um, I've been a teacher since 2006. Um, right now, I'm working specifically with students with dyslexia and tutoring and advocacy work. Um, so that's where my experience brings me to this point. And I'm Shannon Betts. I'm glad to be here with you guys today. And I have been teaching since 2002, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom at elementary and middle school levels. Yeah. Um, it's been a little bit since we've last recorded, so we're just kind of getting back into the swing of things. But there's been a lot that's been happening uh, in the media lately, and maybe um, some of our listeners are familiar with other Facebook groups that have been posting a lot of information. Um, but there has been kind of like a reigniting of the reading wars. And the reading wars... Um, have been going on for quite a, a number of years now. In the 1960s, there was a big phonics push, right? And um, then there was kind of a backlash. And in the 80s and 90s, um, a whole lot language. of... A, a whole language approach was really um, pushed uh, in the level. So whole language is where you immerse students in a language-rich environment, but there was not a lot of explicit teaching on how to do reading. There was a thought that children when they're exposed to this um these good resources and these good um uh, just beautiful literature and and lots of print then they will teach themselves to read um and we're fast forwarding a little bit forward and we have kind of a 2.0 version called balanced literacy right now and um in 2000 you all will remember that there was a national reading panel that was established and they did a lot of um, scientific research and and compiled a lot of information and so um, balanced literacy is kind of a melding of whole language approach a lot of teacher conferences um, it has a lot of ways to guide students in understanding um, one of the the pillars for balanced literacy is phonics instruction however it is not um, always explicitly taught and it's not always in a really systematic um, formula and um, there has been kind of an uprising of parents specifically in the dyslexia camp um, parents of children who have dyslexia and um, in my realm of people who have um, experience and, and expertise in dyslexia that we cannot um, leave phonics in this kind of haphazard um, teaching segment. We need to make sure that it is systematic and explicit. The beginning of the season, even ILA, the International Literacy Association, took a stance that's been stronger than it ever has before about how 
phonics instruction really does need to be explicit and systematic. Um, and in one of our last episodes, I really described the difference between balanced literacy um, and structured literacy. So if you haven't had a chance to go back and listen to that, that will probably inform you a little bit. So with this overview, um, now you kind of see where we are. I, I guess Shannon and I are are both very moderate people. Yes. I don't think either of us really swing too far one way or to the right or to the left. And what it really comes down to is our position is that don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Let's talk about what works. Let's talk about really good teaching practices. And let's um, get some insight from our listeners, too, about some of the things that they need um, assistance with, what they're struggling with. And let's have some conversations about what is working. And rather than jumping to the polarized zones of are you in favor of whole um you know, whole language approach. Are you in favor of phonics only? Um, and, and let's really talk about what's working well with both. And let's talk about evidence-based practices as well. Yeah. So in the hiatus of um, between recordings of our episodes, Mary and I have been communicating because it seems like there's something in the news or in the media almost each week um, in December and this month of January yep. from different camps. And so can you, for our listeners real quick, summarize a couple of the sources that we're really talking about sure. in terms of one extreme or the other extreme. And then we're going to share our perspectives about the reading wars and sort of what, where, where we would define ourselves as. Yeah. So um, Emily Hanford is the one who wrote hard words, which came out, almost two years ago it was now. a podcast it was a podcast and an article APM reports and it was the first kind of big exposure of um what how phonics instruction is not being explicitly taught in school so that was kind of the first push um but recently in the last couple of weeks there have been um a statement from Lucy Calkins that she wrote uh, talking about who owns the science of reading. And that has been sort of a polarizing article. Um, I sort of talked about it a little bit briefly in the previous episode on balanced literacy. And Lucy Calkins has one of the most famous curriculums, and it's in many, many, many schools uh, throughout the U.S. And Lucy and 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 in other countries as well. And Lucy Calkins um, does a reading workshop as well as writer's workshop. She um, teaches at the Teachers College at Columbia in New York, and she's very well known. One of the things that she was speaking about in this statement was really who owns the who owns the science of reading. And I think that sort of misses the point and it really put off a number of people. I think what really we need to focus on is what are the best practices and what are um, the phonics pieces that are missing components in some of our big curriculums that are published by big publishers in the United States. Um, Because it's not being taught explicitly. And we know that we have a number of children who are to the fourth grade level and they're not reading proficiently. So um, that that's a big piece. So Emily Hanford put out a new um, podcast and that came out um, December 20th, 2019. And she um, gives a response to Lucy Calkins and kind of debunks some of the myths um, that are surrounding that um that piece that she put out. Um, There's also um, some information about ILA, and ILA, again, is the International Literacy Association, and they have 
sort of taken a lax stance at times about um, the phonics piece, and they have tended to be more on the side of whole language. Now, there's there's a number of things that go along with that, but I, I would suggest that you listen to Emily Hanford's piece on that. Another, we'll link to it in the show notes, of course, and will. all these original sources. Yes, um, there has also been a professor in Tennessee who attended an ILA conference, and ILA has um, has taken the stance that they do not approve of what he was had spoken about, but he made some really controversial statements where he said um, that he doesn't believe that dyslexia exists, and he also made the statement that the people who wrote the law in Tennessee to defend dyslexia should be shot. And that Woo! definitely... That ignited the reading wars. I will tell you, it has definitely made some waves in, in our circle of, of intellectuals here. And so um, I, I definitely encourage you to listen to Emily's piece on that. And then also... Um, there's another one that came out recently this week from Ed Week, and it talks about um, different curriculums that we're using in the United States and how they don't necessarily cover as much as they should cover. And part of those reasonings that they kind of cite is um, the publishers often are cited as the ones who do the studies and pay for the studies. So what we need to make sure is that when we're purchasing or in charge of purchasing curriculum, we need to make sure that we have a really full view and scope of evidence-based instruction that's um, already been done. And we don't just rely on the publishers um, to tell us why it's the best. We need to use our minds and, and understand. Because we're professionals. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> Precisely. So um, today I want to talk a little bit about how to identify a strong curriculum. And... Um, one of the thoughts that I've had in a conversation that I've had back and forth with one of our listeners is, um, do you need to pick and choose or can you use pieces of, of curriculum? And also, um, is it helpful then to maybe have several different programs that are available for intervention that your teachers would be using with Fidelity? And my comment to that is always ensure that your teachers are using the program with Fidelity and make sure that um, they're understanding it and if they're teaching, well, well, we'll leave it at that. So anyway, there's a lot of information that's that's out there. So we're going to discuss a lot of it today. I'm going to link a lot of show notes, um, including some videos about how you can do some professional development surrounding structured literacy. If you feel like the structured literacy at your school is kind of a weak component, um, we'll, we'll put some resources out there so that you can do your own research. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm going to share a number of anecdotes from my teaching experience and even some of my teacher training, um, about how I came to my position in the reading wars. And it really is, you've sort of given it away. It was your advice uh, to the other teacher about to use a balance, um, yeah. and use pieces for different things. So, I'm a Gemini, and always I can see both sides of every story, which makes sometimes voting a little difficult, because <laughs> yeah. I can I can usually see uh, the good from both. But that's what makes us good at our job. <laughs> there too, we I go, think, Shannon. That's right. Me too. So um, my very few, first few years teaching. Well, first off, let me back up and just say it's been interesting to be a participant in these reading wars because most of the teachers that are in classrooms right now were either taught in phonics or taught in whole language yes you know and so then now we're that's coming 
together later as adults with, okay, we were taught reading one way, but maybe we're asked to teach reading another way, or different initiatives come through in our districts or in our states, and we've got to do one thing or another thing. And that happened early on in my teaching because... Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. I started teaching, and on my first school assignment, we were very heavy in readers and writers workshop. Mm-hmm. And we had a ton of staff development on how to be good readers and writers ourselves. Anything we asked the students to do, we had to do ourselves. If So we did reading logs. We did reading response journals. We wrote our own personal narratives. And that was really powerful experience because it helped build metacognition for us teachers so that we could make the literacy thinking and processes explicit for the students yeah and that modeling piece is so essential and i think it's very true you it's hard to just pick up a curriculum if you don't actually know what it feels like to be a reader and and describe what it feels like if you haven't already right i practiced writing nonfiction myself so then i could explain to the students what i did as a writer right and help them do the same well other schools around us didn't do enough of that professional development piece and so um a few years later another initiative blew through and they really just threw all of that stuff away Mm. as a school district and they went to a very boring scripted phonics only curriculum and they actually wanted us to throw away our leveled books library at our school but my principal literacy coach like ignored those direction <laughs> and saved a level books library but I'm scared that a couple schools did follow that direction but yeah. anyway the outcome of that was after a few years of that very scripted phonics program is that there was a mass exodus of teachers whose creativity was stifled mm-hmm. and it brought a low level of rigor of the instruction that had to be re-raised later because we didn't have a lot of staff development for years on balanced literacy. Mm-hmm. This was in the early 2000s yeah. and middle 2000s. And we didn't have a lot of real life reading and writing staff mm-hmm. development. And so teachers, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like teachers became reliant on the scripts. Right. Okay. I, I would agree with that. And I even remember when I had first started my master's degree, I went to a liberal arts college and I felt very... Um, empowered to be creative with my lessons when I was when I was initially trained and then I went and did my master's degree for special education and I remember arguing with the professor and I said I don't understand how can I be a good teacher and how can I be creative if I have to use a scripted curriculum like where where is my expertise in that and he was very good and he really did turn me around and he said good teachers are good at the craft of teaching yes Right. And so being able to manage a classroom, being able to engage your students, being able to um, ensure that they are um, understanding the content is a really powerful thing. And I do think that a lot of teachers are creative people and they want to be able to showcase their creative side. However, you also have to be really good at understanding the content that you're teaching. Mm -hmm. Right. So. That sent me on a journey. So that scripted program sent me on a journey yeah. because I I implemented it with fidelity the first year. I gave it a chance. Yep. I did it exactly as it was written. Everybody who observed me gave me all glows and no grows, and it didn't work. Hmm. Okay? I tried it and it didn't work. And when, the reason I think it didn't work is because it lacked the metacognition piece. Oh, it yeah. treated the students like idiots, and it didn't teach them 
why a word didn't follow phonics rules or why there were certain rules in the first place. No, I'm just telling you that this is the way it is and you just need to read it this way all the time. Hmm. And so that sent me on a journey to find a better way. And that's when I discovered my dude, Wiley Blevins. There you go. And his scope and sequence. And I added that layer into the scripted program um, because I was mandated to do it. Of course. Um, But I started and ended my lessons with real literature and I layered in that metacognition and showed them, okay, have, for example, is an irregular word. It has a short vowel sound. It should have a long vowel sound, have, right. like the word behave. But instead of me just saying it's a funny word, send it out a funny way, I'm going to explain to you a little bit why. And then that way a student can make a choice about how to sound out a word and understand that one letter can have multiple sounds. Yeah. And so... Um, good teaching is a craft that cannot be scripted and it's relational between students and, um, the teacher and it's really personal. And what I found that I had to do and what other teachers do is that good teachers pull the best practices from all those initiatives and years of experience and a variety of resources. Yes. And as Mary said in an earlier episode, with that being said, everyone, whether they need it or not, Mm -hmm benefit from explicit phonics instruction with a good scope and sequence right i'm going to remind our listeners there's the reading ladder and it's posted in the balanced literacy um the reading ladder is a ladder and if you look at the top rung five to ten percent of students in your classroom will pretty much learn to read given no matter what curriculum they may even learn to read um without a lot of explicit instruction um and then there's about a 40 percent percentage including that top rung and those will benefit from any really reading program Mm -hmm. um, that you give them they will also benefit from structured literacy but they will benefit from any reading program then the bottom 60 percent all really need explicit phonics instruction if you're looking at the very bottom rung, um, the f- between 15 to 20% of your students may have dyslexia. I'm going to say 10 to 20% may have dyslexia. If you have dyslexia, you need systematic, explicit phonics instruction plus a multisensory component. And that multisensory is not going to hurt anybody because everybody will benefit from that. None of this instruction is going to hurt anybody. It's like I'm gluten-free, okay? And I tell everybody, you know what? Everyone can eat gluten-free food. It's open to everybody, but then I really need it. So it's sort of like dyslexic students and other struggling readers really need the explicit phonics, but it's not going to hurt anybody else who's having that instruction either. Exactly. However, it shouldn't just be that. And some phonics programs are just that. Correct. So I think that students should also have a variety of real life reading and writing experiences. Okay. Not just screen reading, Mm -hmm. not just printed paper or close reading worksheets. They need to read real printed books. They need to write real stories crafted on paper. I I 100% agree. And And so balanced literacy, it's balanced literacy plus structured literacy, in my opinion. And um, I do believe that teachers need to be good readers and writers themselves. Mm -hmm. And I really benefited from that staff development early in my career. And I want to give an example of um, a class I took um, in my college. Mm -hmm. They had special math sections for education majors. So I didn't take the regular math that all the other majors took. We had to take um, a numbers-based one and then a geometry-based one just for education majors. And the numbers-based one, we had in one semester have to learn 
how to add, subtract, multiply, divide in base two system, base three, base four, base five, all the way to base 12. Yes, I had a similar class like this, and it was so difficult. It was so difficult, because like base two system, there's only two numbers, one and zero, like the binary code, and one plus one equals 10. Right. Because there is no two. Right. You know? And then (laughs) one plus one plus one is 11. And that completely unmoored us. Yes. Okay. As um, I'm telling you, students. I'm like having like heart palpitations. <laughs> it was the hardest class I took and I did not score. I, I passed, but just barely. It was, it was the lowest. Score we had to gotten. unlearn everything yeah. that we knew about math. And, you know, why do we carry a one when we're, you know, regrouping and things like that? We had to unlearn all of those old practices that we learned in our own schooling and relearn what the numbers in our base 10 um, system really mean. But that made me such a better math teacher. Definitely. Because I learned how to learn math. And so I wish that more pre-service programs did approach literacy the same way, where they have the teachers study the genres and practice reading and writing poetry and practice reading and writing nonfiction. Yes. And keep those reading logs and reader's response and all the other things. Do guided reading with each other. Yes. So that we can become well-versed and good readers and writers themselves ourselves to make that explicit. I, I think it's sort of normal for adults to want to teach the way that they were taught. Yes. That's but our comfort place. It is. When we don't have the experience. And, and that can be parents or and teachers and every... But it doesn't make you professional and it doesn't make you follow evidence-based practices because your 10-year-old brain remembers things very differently than your adult brain processes them now. And so we need to really be um, exceptional at the craft uh, of teaching, but we also need to be exceptional at the content of what we're teaching. Yes. And I talked a little bit about this in the listener questions episode, um, but... This is my opinion about Lisey Calkins. I I like her units of study. Sure. Okay? And I think that's what she was attempting to do mm. in the units of study. I think they're not scripts to follow, even though that is the message that some school districts or teachers are receiving mm-hmm. um, when it's implemented. But to me, when I read the big volumes that she's given for each of the little units of different genres of writing. And you're de- it describes each lesson that a teacher's doing. And to me, it's a bird's eye view of a great literacy workshop instruction, especially for teachers that aren't as comfortable with their reading and writing practices, because what she does um, in her teacher's college program, and I've had colleagues go through the writing mm-hmm. program that they do. That's what that's doing. It's helping teachers become better writers themselves, and then they go back and become better writing teachers. So I think that's what her units of study program was trying to do. So let me give you a concrete example. Um, In our second grade poetry unit, it starts off with um, a teacher bringing in this woven basket full of shells and feathers and sparkly things and uh, my colleague just sort of rolled her eyes and said my goodness Lucy it's just so whimsical (laughs) what is this um whereas I bet there's already listeners who are like oh doesn't that sound amazing I get it I was on the amazing camp it's okay (laughs) but what I think it was trying to show the teacher is to look at the world with poets eyes and help the students do the same and not necessarily us bring in woven baskets full of shells and feathers but 
What I ended up doing is bringing in a special bird's nest that I own. And I also brought in just a very plain pencil Mm -hmm. and a plain sheet of paper. And with those three objects, I modeled how to draft and craft poems and lyrical phrases about just very basic things. And that's what I showed my students how to do. Right. And so I didn't follow it as a script, but I did like seeing how other teachers had taught that same teaching point. Yeah. Well, I think what happens, especially with the reading um, scripts and and just talking about Lucy Calkins, is that in Lucy Calkins' um, uh, scripts and, and manuals, it does make the statement, guess the word. And, yes. and that is just like so aggravating to people who are really working to change and and help other people understand that you cannot just expect kids to guess that is not what a good reader does a good reader decodes a good reader uses its re- their resources to understand and put the sounds of letters together so if we're going to be really nitpicky mm-hmm. then yeah we can say that in her instruction it might not be the best um, evidence-based instruction when she uses um and it's really called the three queuing system. And I didn't say get- that in my own conferences with students because when I had units of study curriculum, um, the her phonics program as well as Fountas and Pinnell phonics programs were still in development, so they weren't around yet. Yep. And so I layered in my own phonics scope and sequence that I love from Wiley Blevins and yep. his um, syllables books. And I put that as whole group and small group. Um, explicit phonics instruction time and then I would pull in those pieces during my writing conferences during the writing instruction during the guided reading and writing times I would pull in that phonics lesson that I had done on Monday or the phonics lesson we had done two weeks ago or oh remember we learned this rule okay that's or what are some strategies that you can do how could you listen to the sounds in this word and choose the best letters to match for spelling And that's just really tying your whole curriculum in together. Right, with the balanced literacy being one long continuous conversation about literacy where you're leading students to the same, you know, um, I like understanding by design. So those same enduring understandings that you're leading students to about, you know, I used to have two phrases up on my wall. So reading is thinking. Yes. And writing is sharing. Yep. And I just always wanted to lead students to those two huge enduring understandings and that the sounds help us with that thinking yeah the letters help us with that thinking and they help us with that sharing because it's a yeah it's a sound symbol relationship where we're choosing a little symbol that's a triangle with lines like the letter a but it stands for something completely different and we're yeah it's not hieroglyphics right yeah it's not hieroglyphics (laughs) we're really well i think part of it is that we know that students need to develop a solid sound si- sound letter mm-hmm. symbol correspond. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> Love it when that happens. No, but the sound symbol correspondence is essential to being able to then move on to the next um, phase of being able to be a reader who decodes efficiently and accurately. So that then they could read to learn instead of learn to read. Correct. So we just need to make sure that we're agreeing on what is a best practice and for me when I'm working with students who have a label of dyslexia or who are struggling readers they need that explicit systematic um, instruction so we need to have a really strong scope and sequence and in your regular ed classroom 
Wiley Blevins might be that strong scope and sequence for them, and they may be doing just fine. But when interventions are needed, and when a special education teacher like myself, when I need additional resources, I cannot rely on just Lucy Hawkins. Right. I cannot rely on just Fountas and Pinnell. I cannot rely on just LLI even, because that might not reach all of my students. And um, what I need to do is find out what are evidence-based practices and what is going to raise the learning, what's going to actually give these students actionable um, skills that they can build on top of each other. And so I, that's my piece. And I think what if I take a bird's eye view of this, what makes us both strong teachers is that you are a really strong regular education teacher. You can think of all of the kids and all of their needs. And in your lesson, you're really modeling the metacognition that would be so beneficial for the students who are working at a higher level, for students who are working at a lower level, for students right in the middle. My goal as a special education teacher or the co-teacher coming in is then to have the expertise for the interventions, be able to work with students who are struggling and still help them to access what you are then teaching them. Mm -hmm. And that is the goal of really good education. And that is what makes us professionals because we can then take that information um, and synthesize it and apply it yes right so that that's really what we're talking about so we need to be aware that these issues are going on but we also need to be really cognizant of the fact that um, as professional teachers and professionals in this field we need to hone our craft we need to understand the content and we need to know the science behind what that is I'm nodding. And you need to know the students. So (laughs) in reading wars, those relationships. Yes. So Mm -hmm. in reading wars, I just think that both kids and teachers lose um, and that both ends of the pendulum are too extreme. And to me, what you just said was great teaching is a craft. It's creative. It's crafted as a balance between methods and resources. And you know that I love data, but like useful data. And I gather running records and I analyze all the students test scores and really look at them and I look at students writing samples and I watch them and study them and I see what do they know and they do not know I just see what is it they have and what are they missing and then it becomes pretty obvious what I need to teach and some of my students when I was an intervention teacher that normal um Wiley Blevins didn't it wasn't enough mm-hmm. and even though I'm not um Gordon Gillingham trained, I ended up developing some methods that are very similar to the ones that you have with multisensory because I realized that I needed to make it more active and I needed to bring in colors and I needed to bring in sounds and different actions and things um, to help the students that that scope and sequence wasn't enough. And I just, my years as an intervention teacher have always been full of action research of studying the students and what okay I have all these tools in my toolbox yes let me try them all and then I end up loving when I get a student where none of them work and it takes a little time and I build that relationship with the student and I keep trying new things and develop new methods and when I now when I am sitting in trainings and getting initiative after initiative after initiative I'm trying to be patient and just understand that that pendulum keeps swinging from one extreme to the next and that um, methods come and methods go but is there something I can learn from this that I could bring to a student and put it in my toolbox but then also stay true to my craft as a teacher yeah I would definitely I'm I'm on board with that I I do live in this like very moderate 
lens of things. Like I can see the the pros and cons. Um, It's really frustrating to me when I go into an IEP meeting and um, the student is not making progress or isn't actually being taught with the interventions that are, you know, supposed to be working with that student and they're just kind of getting passed on. That part infuriates parents, especially and teachers like me who sit in on meetings and things like this. And that was supposed to be behind the hashtag, or not hashtag, I'm doing quotation marks, no child left behind phrase and right. movement, right? but end up getting lost in a whole lot of data and other things. So, but right. so we, we don't want any child to fall behind. We don't. No, we, we want to live in this moderate era, but we also need to be really cognizant of the fact that not all students learn the same way. If you are a reading specialist and you are the person in charge at your school, you, in my opinion, you need to have a variety of resources at your fingertips that you can either train other teachers with or utilize with other students that way, um, uh, you know, to, to really reach them. And we can't just let them slip by because they're not fitting. Or I taught it, but they didn't learn it. I taught it and they didn't learn it, right? That's not acceptable. We have to be able to reach these students um, using a number of if different If they didn't learn resources. it, then teach it a different way. I and love teach that. it again. That's right. Oh, I think that this is a really powerful conversation that our readers can, can take a lot from because there is an art to teaching and there is a science to teaching and good teachers meld those together. And I know that um, our listeners have a variety of number of years of experience and different types of schools um, different colleges where they were trained and things like that Um, so Mary is gonna has a bunch of different resources that you could put in your arsenal yes I'm Um, happy to to link that there's some um, really great videos and webinars that are recorded Um, it's called the upper branch um, it's IDA, which is the International Dyslexia Association, and it's the Upper Midwest branch. They have a whole clearinghouse of amazing recorded webinars um, that are free, and you can just download them. So I will pick a few um, that I found to be really helpful, but re- just know that you can you can look through um, their whole arsenal. So that's that's one really great one, and I found that understanding and learning the structured literacy piece of it has been really helpful by by looking through those webinars. Um, And then also, uh, I'm going to go back to David Kilpatrick. Um, I know (laughs) I need a commission on that book. I really do. He's it's, it's a concise, um, really appropriate read. And if you've already read it once, pick it up again and read it again, because every time I pick it up, I get more information. The name of the book is called Equipped for Reading Success. And what he talks about is what is the simple view of reading and how you need to be able to decode and understand the language piece and how um, the phonological awareness and other really um, basic foundational skills are so essential and they often get glossed over and that's typically the the first piece that students are missing when they are struggling readers and they hit second grade and they just are not able to put the sounds and manipulate the sounds of words and the second piece that he talks a lot about is orthographic mapping and what that is is being able to um, string the letters together recognize those words with automaticity and 
it's different than a visual memory. You're not memorizing what the word looks like, but your brain is actually mapping what those individual um, letters and sounds are, and it's instantaneously helping you to recognize those. Um, And then also the language component of understanding the spoken language that comes into it. If you feel like I'm a really good reading teacher, but I can't totally articulate how students learn to read, pick this book up. It's really helpful. It's really helpful. And if you're a pre-service teacher, especially if you're thinking of going into special education, pick it up. If you've been in the field for 36 years, pick it up. You're going to be amazed. It's fantastic. And it's easy to read. So um, uh, we will definitely post these resources. We would love to hear back and some of your feedback about um, these reading wars and some of your experiences. And um, we'll continue the conversation in our yeah. Instagram and on our Facebook page mm-hmm. um, so that y'all can weigh in on your own stance. I don't think we solved the reading war today, but maybe we had a little treaty of Versailles. We had a little yeah. meeting. <laughs> I'm always I'm always happy to, to bridge the bridge anything, really. <laughs> I mean, I just, I fully believe it. Uh, make sure, sure the students learn it. And yes. if you have a student who is scoring low in reading, try phonics first. Try phonics first. <laughs> I like it. It's really great. But then also, read aloud to those students, give them real books, give them real writing experiences, because that is when that orthographic happens. Like, because they're blending and segmenting all those sounds and choosing letters to express their thoughts. Correct. And, And it's, it's not learned just through one practice worksheet. Yes, we need to make sure that we are really giving them um, as much practice as we can. The practice has to be important to the students. Let's link to our encoding episode too, because we did talk a lot oh, about that's that. That's a great idea. Yep. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining our conversation. Thank you, um, Jordan, for the music and Allison for our artwork. Yeah. Uh, and also to Susan, who's been helping us a lot too lately. Thanks, Susan. All right.